You're listening to Offsite, a series of interviews with theatre makers who work in unusual site-specific, site-responsive and non-traditional spaces. This series was recorded over two weeks in December 2020 and is supported by the Arts Council. I'm Owen Winning and in this episode I'm talking to Mel Mercier. Joined now by Mel Mercier. Mel Mercier is a traditional percussionist, composer, and educator. He has an international reputation as an innovative performer rooted in Irish traditional music and committed to collaborating across musical genres and art forms. A renowned award-winning composer, Mel has composed the music for many critically acclaimed award-winning theatre productions and installations that have been presented at theatres and venues in Ireland, the UK, Europe, and America. He is Professor and Chair of Performing Arts at the Irish World Academy of Music and Dance, University of Limerick. Um, Mel, you're very welcome. Thanks very much for chatting to me. Oh, thanks very much for inviting me. <laughs> uh, Mel, you come from a very musical family and a literary family. Um, did you attend much theatre growing up? I didn't um, attend much theatre growing up, uh, at least not until I started to write plays. Um, and particularly the, the the plays that he wrote and directed for the Passion Machine. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that, that that was my introduction to theatre. You know, we we the whole family went. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, you know we 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 went to his opening nights often. And um, I mean, I know that Paul and my father uh, and my mother they were good theatre goers. Um, they often went to the Abbey and to see, you know, Brian Friel plays and the likes. And I knew that was going on, but it wasn't something that I was especially interested in until uh, there was that connection made through Paul's plays. And um, when we were going to Paul's plays, I mean, they were always very emotional. It was a very emotional thing for us because, um, well, in some ways we, we, we felt that, uh, the stories he was telling and the, the people he was uh, bringing on the stage and their stories that they were ones that we could relate to. Um, I mean, I go as far as to say that sometimes we we were sure that um, um, sometimes parts of the stories at least were about us. Mm. Um, and you'd see references to things in the plays um, which resonated strongly with our own family life. Um, and uh, so that, of course, made it a very... Um, yeah, an emotional experience, um, a very personal one. Um, and I think there was, my own feeling was, I mean, I always cried at Paul's place um, at a certain point in time. There, there, there was always something that really caught me. Um, and um, yeah, I think he had that wonderful ability to tell stories in an incredibly energetic way in a, uh, that communicated very immediately, but also really at some point, you know, tugged at the heartstrings. Um, there was a kind of pathos in them, I think. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and also uh, plays like um, Studs, for example, um, just really made you realize the potential of theater for, for magic. Um, and, uh, you know, to be able to put a football team on the stage. I mean, I still have vivid images of the football team mm. on the stage and the slow mm. motion and the, and the charge. There was a kind of charge to it um, that, uh, that really, really, really connected um, with me. But, I, but it was Paul's world. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always felt that uh, it was something I was stepping into Paul's world and... Um, and that and and that was wonderful, and there was a huge amount of pride as well in him and in his achievement. Um, but it very it felt very separate to me because actually I was I was in another world. I was in a world of traditional music, really. 
Mm. Um, and then later uh, in the world of, uh, you know, world, world music, it, it, um, it took till the late 1990s or mid, mid to late 1990s before the two worlds kind of collided for me. Was that the first time that you actually worked on a play in the 90s? I can't actually honestly remember when I started working on plays, Owen, but um, it, it, uh, I had, I suppose I had a couple of experiences um, on the stage um, in terms, you know, with plays. One was playing the role of Carthalon in Sive, um, John B. Keane Sive. Um, and that's because I was a Bowron player, not because I was an actor. Um, and that was in a local production, I think, maybe in Ballantyre. Um, when that was, I'm not entirely sure. That may have even been in the 1970s, um, possibly the early 1980s. Um, that was a wonderful experience. Uh, I played the role of, um, this is not something one should say on any interview, but I did play the role of Nanky Pooh in the <laughs> Mikado uh, in, in a production. Um, in, when I was a student in Cork, 1989, not, uh, sorry, not 19, when did I go to UCC? Uh, yeah, 86, so some 86, 1986, 87 uh, production at the Cork School of Music. I played the role of Nanki Poo. And uh, I mean, I absolutely loved that. I, I really loved it. I wasn't good. I, I, I'd say I was useless, actually. And I certainly can't act. Um, but I loved being on the stage and uh, I do love being on the stage. Mm. So uh, I, I was very happy to, to be there in that guise. Um, but in terms of writing music, um, I think the first person who maybe asked me to make some music for a play was Michael Scott okay. um, for a, uh, a, a play called Tinikanov, uh, which was on in the Damer Theatre. Now, I'm sure I have a program of that somewhere and I could find out when, when that was. But that, I think, was one of the earliest ones I did. And honestly, I went in and, again, I, 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 I loved it. But I, I really hadn't a clue what I was doing. I didn't know what, what I was doing, you know. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I certainly, you see, the thing is, I, I didn't consider myself to be a composer of any kind. So I was really coming in, I suppose, as a, musician but actually I was coming in as a baron and bones player um i had now that now that i'm talking about it, I, I also remember um uh um being in one of ulick o'connor's uh no plays <clears throat> he did a, a series of no plays and i was a baron and bones player in that um and uh learning to walk uh, in that in the no in the no style. I think Geraldine Plunkett was in that. And there, so, you know, I kind of skirted a, 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 along the edge of the theatre world. But I I did something for um, uh, for Tinikanov with, with Michael Scott. Um, and then I did uh, one or two other small things. But actually, uh, the my real sort of step into theatre was uh, with Deborah Warner. Deborah Warner rang me in Cork when I was a student in Cork. Well, I wasn't a student anymore, but uh, I was uh, living in Cork in 1999. I was teaching at UCC at the time mm -hmm. and I uh, got a phone call from Deborah Warner, who I didn't know. Um, mm -hmm. And she was uh, in Ireland. She was in Cork. She was down with Fiona Shaw um, and uh, she had been um, commissioned by the Abbey to direct a production of Medea. And um, she she got in touch with me. Uh, not she got in touch with me through 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 a, a mutual connection. Mm -hmm. um, we'd never met before, and uh, we met in the Imperial uh, for a cup of tea in in Cork on the South Mall, and we spoke about um, theatre uh, to the extent that I could. Um, I, at that point, I didn't know really who Deborah was. I had heard of Fiona because. Mm -hmm. um, you couldn't be in Cork without having her hearing about Fiona. Sure. Um, so I, at the end of that conversation, Deborah asked me if I would do the music for Medea. Um, and uh, honestly, we've spoken about it several times since. Um, I'm not, still don't know why she asked me. Um, I think maybe she wanted to use an Irish composer. Mm -hmm. 
because she was making play in Ireland, making the production. And uh, and I maybe she didn't know anybody else. Um, I think she'd worked with some composers before in her early work, but not a lot, I think. I don't think sound, music and sound, uh, had been a big part of her uh, stage, uh, her plays uh, uh, up to that point. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I do remember in the conversation we had, Deborah um, and I both agreeing that recorded sound didn't really work in theater. Uh, and also that, uh, that it was incredibly difficult to make live uh, live music work in theater. So we're like left with this conundrum. Okay, so we can't use live music and we can't use recorded, but let's do it. So mm-hmm. I agreed to do it and I stepped into that without really knowing on what I was what I, what I was stepping into. I was really blessed. I didn't have a recording studio, access to recording studio. I didn't have I couldn't do any I didn't have any uh, music software of any kind uh, at that stage. I don't think I had a computer or anything. Um, and so I, I worked with, um, uh, um, in the Abbey studio with David Nolan. Is that the right, is that, is that, um, uh, I, I'm not sure. I, I could, I could find I that. Was, yeah. That'd be great. Dave. And he was wonderful. Now, sadly, Dave passed away far too young, but, um, I worked with him and, uh, in, in, in his studio there, uh, um, in the Abbey, and uh, we sort of made the soundscape there. And I remember doing things that I'd never done before, like um, you know, taking the sounds of um, a whale or the sounds of rats and treating them uh, uh, to 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 create uh, kind of drones and things out of them, which I which I then used. Uh, in uh, for the soundscape of Medea and in fact in the end having not made any much theatre at all I ended up uh, underscoring the whole of the play um and uh and and it and it was it was very successful it was very well received um uh, it was very well received here and then it went to Broadway and it was in it went to the West End and so suddenly I found myself in that Sort of international theatre world cat, kind of catapulted into it, and uh, I think in a way then I, that's where I really learnt how to make um, sound sound for theatre. Um, um, yeah, uh, and, and it was I, I, it was Dave Nolan. Yeah. I just looked it up there. Yeah, he yeah, was a sound technician in the Abbey, and then became a head of sound. Um, yeah, he was lovely. Man. Fantastic. Um, so that was your kind of your first foray, and obviously you've been making compositions for theatre ever ever since but at the same time you know you're 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 regularly performing as a musician as well and and you've got a you know you've you've had a very diverse uh, range of collaborators musically um just through playing with different genres and playing in different styles and different festivals i'm sure um do you think this and i wonder as well like as a percussionist do you find that inevitably as a musician you're going to be playing with somebody else accompanying someone or they accompanying you um that that solo percussion is is rare enough in a concert setting um do you think this tendency yeah. towards collaboration assisted with your theater work yeah um i think that i um yeah i i, I mean i think that that's kind of in my dna um the collaboration working with other people because um as you say um you know when you're a baron player baron and bones player invariably or always you're you you need someone else to play with if you're playing within the traditional uh traditional idiom Mm. traditional music idiom so um you're always part of uh, of a duet or more and um so yes, that's the. As all, 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 I, I've always been sitting beside somebody else mm. uh, in in music making situations, and um, I am not a soloist. Um, in that, you know, not really a soloist. I, I I don't have any great desire to be either. I mean, one can develop a solo <coughs> um, practice, and um, 
and I did study North Indian tablan and, and a variety of other uh, kinds of percussion-based um, musics. But I'm, I, I, I have always been more drawn to ensemble music. So the traditional, I, I mean, I've, I, I've loved the, um, the experience of sitting in a session uh, or on the stage uh, in a group context and playing together. It's just, I, I've always loved that. Mm-hmm. And I've, I was drawn, uh, when I had the opportunity, I was drawn to uh, playing Japanese gamelan, which is a kind of quintessential ensemble music, or West African drumming, with us, which is also, um, uh, it, it is ensemble music. It, 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 it is about uh, being entrained with other people about uh, sharing time and space and interlocking, sharing musical space with other people, and um, so I've so yeah, they're they're the spaces that I have been drawn into. Um, when I think back to when I was you know in my teens and in my twenties, um, my father and I would sit at home and just play a du- bower on duet together. You know, just just. Uh, sit and kind of improvise together. Not in any formal way, not often, it was no big deal. It might've been if my father was maybe warming up or practicing for a concert or something like that. But we found ourselves sitting together playing. And in fact, it was that little duet that we made that then um, we then brought into a relationship with John Cage. Um, So that when John Cage called, and asked my father to take part in his Roratorio. That would be 1979, the phone rang. Um, again, my father, who didn't know who John Cage was, and I didn't either, um, you know, he said, well, can I bring my son along? So we kind of really sort of brought that, that duet with us. And then we found ourselves into a, in, in, in a very collaborative uh, environment uh, with other traditional musicians um, but also in the company of John himself uh, and the company of three or 4,000 other sounds sharing the space, and then eventually with the Merce Cunningham Dance Company. So this kind of interdisciplinary, um, uh, a collaborative uh, artistic space is something that I, I, I was always, I, I found myself in, I was very comfortable in, the other thing about the John Cage experience, I think, is that in that moment of when we entered into Roratorio, uh, I and my father and the other traditional musicians, we encountered uh, and were catapulted into the middle of the avant-garde. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there's quite a contrast between um, <laughs> traditional music yeah. in the 1970s and 80s and the American, and the American avant-garde. Mm-hmm. But I think that kind of just, it was a, it, for me, it was a relatively soft landing, I have to say. Um, I think for my father it was a soft landing too, but, but he, it, but I think it was a, uh, um, perhaps slightly more shocking um, uh, for, for, for him. And he negotiated it brilliantly and poetically, but uh, it was a relatively soft landing for me. But it, but also a kind of, I think, a very significant, profound um, moment, because I think what it made me understand was that um, anything was possible, mm-hmm. and that it was like, okay, so this is music as well, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the contrast between that world where where John Cage said to us, you know, look, um, don't play with the other musicians, <laughs> I mean, as opposed to you know, in the traditional world, play with the other musicians, tune in together. Mm-hmm. So almost in, in the Roratorio piece, you were tuning into something else. You were tuning into a concept or an idea. And, um, and of course, an extraordinarily rich um, world of, of sound. Uh, and, the, and, and I think at the time, it, I didn't know this, but I, I think I certainly perceived it. And then I learned about it later was you were also into a world which of chance and a world where uh, full of surprise and where um, uh, control was problematized. You know, the idea that you would control every, every movement, every, mov- every moment, that you, mm-hmm. would, um, that you would 
uh, carefully shape the narrative, uh, as you could argue, you know, happens in in, uh, in traditional in traditional music to some degree. So there, there, uh, the, yeah. So that world also, like you know, just blew that apart as well. And I think that actually, um, the other aspect of it about listening about listening, being in a soundscape and listening out. Because I remember my father saying, you know, the great thing about doing Roratoria was that every night you heard different things. Mm. So something about listening. And uh, that's that's something that I have brought with me and developed into a practice, I would say, uh, in my in my theatre work. Fantastic. Um, how, uh, how did you come to start working with uh, Kirkadurka? Um, again, around the same time as I got the call from Deborah, it might even have been in the same same month. I can't quite remember. I got a call. It was about 1999 again or 2000. And uh, I have to ask Pat Kiernan this, um, but I but he asked me to do music for uh, a Midsummer Night's Dream, and that was uh, uh, I met with him. I still remember meeting with Pat and some of the other uh, um, design members of the design team and and the technical team. And I think we were in a pub in Cork. We were sitting on high stools, uh, uh, much closer than two meters from each other, mm-hmm. uh, looking across a small little table, talking the play and the production. And I remember the excitement of that. Um, I remember feeling really immediately uh, very connected to to Pat and to the project and to uh, see. For me, I've been in Cork. I'm from, I mean, from Dublin. I, I went to Cork in 1986 uh, to study music, and then, apart from two years in California, uh, I, I remained there until just a few years ago, and that was my first time. That uh, to connect into the theatre community in Cork. I'd seen some Kirkadurka plays. Uh, I'd gone to uh, to see some of the work, um, and uh, not, not a huge amount. Again, I was very much uh, 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 immersed in the traditional music scene in Cork, mm-hmm. and so the and the theatre scene, as you know, in in uh, you know feels quite separate. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so this was an opportunity to step into the theatre world, and and I felt very welcomed and. Um, I felt immediately like I had a kind of voice in there, which was fantastic. And that, that's, that's a great, um, I think that's a <clears throat> due to, to, to Pat largely. Um, and his allowing of that, his, his facilitation of it, giving me the space. <clears throat> so, I, so I remember the, the exciting conversations about, not about the music uh, so much, but uh, about, the, about the location, about the park, Fitzgerald's Park, where it was mm-hmm. going to be set. And uh, <clears throat> then, Following that conversation, going down to Fitzgerald Park uh, to, on a side visit to have a look around, Pat saying, "Oh, I think we're going to do this scene here, and we're going to do this one there," and I began to get ideas immediately about, um, you know, musicians in trees, for example, or um, I got a strong image of a, a tuba player on top of one of the little um, little pendopos. Um, uh, um, one of I can't, not, it's like a hut in the place and indeed we ended up doing that but uh at that time we were talking about live music mm. because we're, we're using live music uh, quite a bit at that time <coughs> Sorry, and i hadn't really done much with with uh making you know well as i say i hadn't done much theater music anyway but i had done less uh, uh ensemble stuff and but we spoke about that immediately and i i drew on um mostly on uh students or former students in UCC or other other musicians uh, from somebody from Cork School of Music, for example. And we put together a small little kind of traveling band. Um, and uh, and that's, yeah, and that's, that's how that began. Uh, and I loved it. I loved the outdoor, um, loved the rehearsals outdoor. I loved the, always loved the thing of, of uh, working at nighttime. Mm. Um, because one of the things I think I discovered when I was working on Medea uh, 
particularly working, in, as you know very well, in the, the so-called quiet times, when you get the space to yourself, when everybody else is gone, and it's just you and the sound engineer and, uh, and the stage, the empty stage, and the sound, and, and a little bit of working light. Um, having the space to yourself um, and, and not much light, but just enough for atmosphere. Uh, the music kind of sings in a way, uh, it kind of finds its full voice mm. in those moments. And um, so light and darkness and shade are, I, for me at least, I've discovered, are uh, sound's absolute best friends. Um, and so it's why, for example, I, I find it hard to, I, I think of myself when I'm working in theatre more as a painter than a, mm. than a composer. Um, because I don't, I never make anything beforehand. Um, mm -hmm. Somebody asks me to do a play. If four weeks out they say, "How are you getting on with the score?" <laughs> I usually try and say, well, "Actually, I'm not really working on a score. What I'm doing is I'm trying to build up a set of sounds and colours, a palette mm -hmm. of sounds, which I'll then take in when we get into rehearsals and particularly in the technical period. Mm -hmm. And so for uh, a Midsummer Night's Dream, the technical period really kicked in when the sun went down and the theatre lights came up and you began to create that space apart. And that's when the magic would happen. Um, and somehow or other, uh, it almost feels to me that when the theatre lights come up in the dark, that the sounds too are illuminated. Yeah. And so I love working. I love working uh, like that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know all about that. That's Yeah, that's fantastic. Lighting. Yeah, yeah, no, I, and, and I, I know what you mean that that uh, it is a very special time when you are working and obviously I, I can do it too myself sometimes if it's just myself working on the desk with no actors um mm. the opportunity to experiment um without any fear of saying oh no we have to move on or we don't have time to have a look at that or you know that would never work you know you can kind of banish all that stuff to the side and you you just have this opportunity to to have a look at something so um and yeah being able to to listen to uh i mean look that's a question i suppose actually i mean do you do you find if you are if you if you say that this is the ideal setting with the little bit of light and and just being able to really clearly listen to to the music to the sounds does it follow then that necessarily the performance interrupts that uh, the the fact of having an audience there muttering away and eating crisps and or, or you know having actors declaiming loudly over it that that the the sound is somewhat diminished by by that um i think the um you, you know those quiet times that you have um you know it's a it's a kind of self-indulgence mm -hmm. um and uh I, 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 you know, I know that that, that won't last long, um, uh, but, I, but I, I really, really appreciate it. I love it because I love sound and I, I love um, the opportunity just to hear sound and architecture, you know, or sound and, sound and space and sound and light working together. Um, but I do it, uh, I'm doing it really, I mean, it's, I think I'm doing it uh, without actors, for example, and without other people in the room, but uh, the traces of, <clears throat> the traces of the work of the actors, of the, uh, uh, of the, of the, the shifting light um, of the text are actually still present in the room. Um, and, and I can't really do the kind of tuning work that I need to do unless I keep that in the room with me. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a sort of, yeah, it's an interesting kind of um, process of just trying to really tune into the sounds in the space for themselves. Because I think you need to do that in order to uh, really get them to sing and find their voice mm. at the same time as um, uh, uh, continuing to s picture them 
in the context of uh, what, what everything else that's going on. So, so the, the work really is about uh, weaving and uh, creating a tapestry and uh, um, uh, br bringing your part of that tapestry into the mix of things along with light and along with um, the staging and the set and the, and the actors' voices and movement is critical of mm -hmm. actors and stage pieces. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, that's terribly important. Um, so it's a, uh, yeah, so it, it, is a, it, it is a process of that. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's really interdisciplinary. It's really collaborative. Um, ultimately the success, for me, the measure of the success of my part in it is how it is woven into and around and under and above and uh, connects with or amplifies um, or mirrors or maybe even suggests uh, other dimensions. Mm. Uh, in a, so, you know, it's like another force in the room. Yeah. Another force in the room. Um, so I don't have any great desire for it to, 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 to just stand on its own because actually uh, it is, it, it has its most, it's, it's, it's most potent when it's in the presence of the other things. Mm. Um, and sometimes it is, uh, uh, yeah, so I, I think that it is most present there. In terms of getting it in, and that's what I, anxiety when I, when I start to work in the theatre is, how am I going to get anything in? How am I going to get anything to stick? How am I going to place something into this world? Mm -hmm. And um, it, can be, uh, it can be something as simple as um, like a mo uh, some movement on the stage. So let's say in the set design um, and the choreography of that, um, there's a, you know, a moving piece on stage. Sure. Yeah. That sort of opens something that it, it like, it opens up, uh, uh, it changes the, the energy in the space. It also energizes the space. And that itself is already an intervention in the, in, 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 uh, in the space. And so sometimes I try back on something like that so I'll have my pound in some notional way based on the conversations that I might have had with Pat Kiernan or Deborah Warner about the play honestly Leon, I probably haven't read the play yeah. yeah I'm mostly relying on the I'm mostly relying on the conversations mm -hmm. with Deborah or any other director or with Judy for example um, uh, Judy Judy Hegarty Lovett for for how it is I'm most I, the conversations that I have with the director uh, and hearing, getting an insight into where, where they're asked in terms of their interpretation or relationship with the play is much more useful to me than me reading the play myself. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I find reading the play can act, kind of get in the way because mm -hmm. I, I can get too stuck into the detail. So I like a kind of blurry relationship with it. Sure. And so I like a couple of conversations, not too many. And then I take those away and I, and, and I, because I know I have to create something in the end, the conversations are great. I actually know I've actually got to make some sound. I have mm -hmm. to commit to something. Mm -hmm. So under the pressure of that, some, I, I, I'll come, I'll, I'll start to get a sense of, well, maybe I might use a hurdy-gurdy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No idea why. Um, it might be, there may be some connection with uh, the, the geography of the play or something like that, but I'd say more often than not, it's just a hunch or a notion. Mm. Um, or maybe I'll work with some cello and then I'll go away and I'll, I might get a hurdy-gurdy myself and go into the studio and just start fooling around, playing around, trying to make some interesting sounds, process them, see if I can make some interesting textures. Then I might say, okay, well, that's quite nice. I quite like those sounds. Why don't I get in a cello player? I'll bring in Kate Ellison. I'll do a session with Kate and, and we'll, we'll set up a bit of a dialogue and get Kate to respond to these sounds and again, gather some more material mm -hmm. and et cetera, et cetera. And I might go back into my own archive of sounds and see if, if any of them like the new ones that I've made. And then I go in, I bring those in and then I'm sitting there 
waiting. I might might go to a few rehearsals. I'm not huge. I'm not a huge fan of going to too many rehearsals, um, uh, because the energy is all invariably uh, much more focused on the actors uh, and the direction of the actors. And so you're, uh, it's it. You need them. You need the director and you need the actors to be very accommodating. And they're not often able to be because they've got other things to to focus on. They feel like a bit of an interloper. Um, but but if if it is possible to do it, it's great because you can. It can be in the rehearsal room uh, that you might try something and it might stick on the canvas, and then you know, okay, now I'm in. Um, and or or if it waits until the uh, um, if it waits until the technical rehearsal, uh, where there's a little bit more of an understanding and an expectation. Okay, this is time for sound and light, etc. So we we get to play a little bit more. We're given more license um, to do that. But I'm I'm waiting for a moment somehow or other um, because the heat in the in the in the play in the in the story in the plot in the narrative uh, gets to a certain point where uh, I know that uh, the intensity will take some sound. Mm. And I, that's when I can get it in. And once I get it in, and and, 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 the, and if it works, it doesn't always work, then I've got to try something else really quickly. But if I get a sound in, a texture, a color, that, that seems to like, like to be in the space or work in the space, then I know that many of the other things in my palette will also work. Mm-hmm. And then it's a question of then trying to build quickly, to paint quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's 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 what works. And th- but of course, it happens so quickly in rehearsals and tech that you can't finesse any of that. Right. And so it's in those quiet times, late at night, early in the morning, um, where you get a chance to go and say, oh, "Okay, so this is the picture that I was starting to paint here, and now I have the space to myself to just look at that part of the picture which is mine, and to tune into." to tune into that and get the elements to blend more, to speak, uh, um, uh, to shape it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And can I ask you so then, uh, you know, about, um, say, Kirkadirka, for example, but, you know, any sort of off-site or site-specific show, do, do those times become rarer and, and harder to come by, you know, if you are limited, especially with, with sound, um, you know, if you're in some sort of a, an area where you only really can do it maybe between 8 and 10 p.m. or something, and you might have three days or something before the show opens. Does that put a lot of added pressure on you then? Um, like, like do, is, is, say, working outdoors or working site-specifically, yeah. does that have, like, a lot more challenges than in a in a traditional theatre space? Working outdoors has its challenges, and, and but certainly has its advantages too. I think the challenges are... are um, to do with um, things like um, outdoor sites are often um, shared. So they're often, you know, they can be public. So you don't have uh, um, the sole access to them. So if you're working on Spike Island during the day, it's still open as a visitor center. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you're trying to make work and rehearse work in what effectively are public spaces. Um, so that can be difficult. Um, that's a challenge. It adds to the, um, just adds to the experience, I would say, mind you, it's, you know, just just animates it in a different way. Uh, other challenges are, of course, weather. And that can be, that can be a real problem. Uh, and uh, working with sound, um, you know, you, you find yourself using a lot of plastic bags to bag up speakers, especially with Irish weather. It's just, it always rains. Um, and um, so that can be a challenge. You're, you know, you're taking down stuff, you're putting up stuff for, for rain. Also, how do you work outdoors if it's raining? Um, so you've got to build a little... Wind is another enemy, um, you know, so you're, 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 you know, you've got to build little kind of uh, tents to work in, put the desk down on, put the computer down, but you know, it might blow away. Um, or it's it, the wind is so loud that, you, that it's so noisy. And a lot of the sound that I make, I can make some loud sounds too, but a lot of it can be quite small and subtle, but you can't hear it because of the wind. Or if you're using radio mics, um, you know, they're impossibly. So working outdoors has, has uh, it can be terribly challenging, but, 
uh, there is a, I think it creates a sense of uh, a kind of bond of like working against the elements. Yeah. Um, I, and, and I always really, I really enjoy that. There's something about it as well, about working outdoors. Um, out, it's um, the, the theatre space can, can actually be quite oppressive. You know, the, the four walls working inside with no natural light. Um, you know, uh, I think it's not the healthiest place to be. Um, whereas outdoors, there is a feeling of a, um, a pressures don't build up in the same way. Um, there's more, there's more space and more air for egos and for 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 um, uh, conflict. And it doesn't mean that you know things don't things don't uh, 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 get heated and all the kind of thing. But somehow or other, uh, the outdoor seems to dissipate that a little bit more. And I and I I, I certainly enjoy it. Certainly enjoy it for that reason. And that's one. That's definitely one of the advantages. Uh, there's also often more space. Mm. So you can be in different spaces, and that's, I love that. Um, again, not just being in the one space, one focus of the theatre. You're moving between spaces. Um, it, can be, uh, it, it can be much less um, controlled in that sense. It's much, it can be more haphazard. Um, you're, you know, there's wires everywhere. It's a little bit more, it can often feel a little bit more makeshift. Um, I, I actually find all those things really uh, enjoyable yeah. and sort of good for the creative process. Mm. Um, and the other thing about it is that the days tend to be longer. So because your prime time is from sunset up to whatever, I mean, I know working with Korka Durka, you know, time you're working till one or two in the morning. So in fact, you end up having longer, uh, uh, more time uh, to work and the other thing is because there's a, a, it's a different kind of intensity. There tends to be less intensity uh, uh, because it's not so compressed outdoors. There, I find there's more pockets of time in the day when mm. I can be working away myself, not disturbing anybody. Mm. You know, the great thing about the outdoors is that you, sometimes you can, you can play, you can do uh, kind of spectacular epic things mm. and, and uh, you know, you can make big gestures. Um, and of course, as you know yourself, sometimes the outdoor sites allow you to make big lighting gestures too. Sure. So it means that that if there is this relationship between light and sound, uh, then when you're in outdoor settings, you get to live that at another level. You know, yeah, you get to yeah. play at another level, and that's like, fantastic. Li like a larger canvas, you know. Yep. Yeah. Um, a, a larger canvas, and 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 one that's just more distressed. Mm. That's nicely put. Um, can I ask you a bit about uh, the technology of sound? Like you work regularly with Anthony Hanley um, and, and other sound engineers, and you know I've I've kind of watched you um, adjusting levels and frequencies and that. Um, but yeah. like, how au fait are you with the technical side of the production of of these sounds? Um, is there is there a sort of you you sort of learn as much as you need? For your compositional side, and then kind of the 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 higher levels of it, you'll you'll leave off to other people, or is it a sort of thing where you know actually, you know, I don't want to be involved in that side at all, and and actually, can I just you know take the samples or the recordings, and and you you make them, you know, you 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 do all the sure. stuff. How how involved are you in that side? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Um, First thing I'll say is go back to the, I go back to the, the, the thing of collaboration and always being, always uh, in, in music making, always being, you know, shoulder to shoulder with somebody else. That's just the way it's always been. I, it's the same for me in terms of um, the design into spaces of, of the sound. Um, so I love to be shoulder to shoulder with somebody like Anthony. But even before that, I will have found ways to be, to sit beside uh, Donica Moynihan, for example, who uh, uh, sound engineer and in his studio in Cork, where I do most of um, my uh, uh, recording uh, and also most of my mixing and stuff and finessing and editing of sounds. I just love to be in the room with somebody else. Um, 
but I but I especially like it when the roles are clearly understood and defined. So, um, the the I, I work on if I if I'm doing record if I'm if it's I'm making something of, uh, to be played back um, uh, rather than performed live. I use Cubase, so I do my composing with Cubase, um, and I that's the only. Um, uh, sequencer that I use, of course, it is a cousin to Logic and all sorts of other ones. So when I'm in a, another context in the studio, or whatever, um, if I go into Donica, everything gets translated over into another system. But it, I mean, the language is slightly different, it's like a different regional st version of it. Mm -hmm. But I mean, more or less, I I, I know what's going on. But Donica is doing all of the um, doing all the technical work, and in fact, he's doing all. He's doing, I'm there saying, you know, can we try a little bit of reverb here? Yeah, can we clean that sound up? Then? And he's doing them because he's much quicker. That's what he does. He's brilliant at that. Mm -hmm. He's also, uh, I'm also able to sort of say very vague things to him like, um, is there any way that we could make this sound um, just a little bit further away? Yeah. <laughs> he might say, oh, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, further away. So, okay, well, he said, we try this. So we, he's able to say, oh, I'll try this, I'll try this, I'll try this. And I say, oh yeah, that's it. No, yeah, no. Um, so so we build up a relationship um, like that. What I would say is that I'm taking the lead on the uh, on the compositional aesthetic yep. uh, dimensions of it in that case. When I go in with Anthony then, he, uh, and I always work with somebody like Anthony, um, and increasingly, uh, I have um, made it happen that that person is not just the op uh, uh, credited as, as the operator or the sound engineer, mm -hmm. but as something like an associate sound designer. Mm -hmm. Because um, when I'm working with Anthony, he is the one that has, he has the chops in terms of setting up the system, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, working with the, with, with the hardware, with the speakers, with the desk, setting up that system uh, and working with, so the, 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 the uh, playback uh, um, software we use is, is QLab mostly. Um, he, he knows the ins and outs of QLab and, and, and changing it and, uh, much better than I do. I know, I know what's happening, um, but it's much quicker for Anthony to do the programming. So I'll give Anthony the files, for example, and let's say I give him, basically give him, Anthony, here's my palette of sounds. Will you put them into QLab? And now let's start painting. He's hold, he's the one holding the brush. Yeah. yeah. yeah and yeah, what yeah. I'm saying, use a bit of this color and put it over there and, mm -hmm. and, and that kind of, because there's, a, there's an interface between uh, me and, and the sound that goes into the space. And Anthony's the one who's in that interface with the technology. Sure. Yeah. And again, he's, he, he'll be, he, but he's not, he has agency in it as well mm -hmm. because he, Anthony would say to me, well, you know, why don't I, uh, why don't I put these speakers here and those there because you'll get a better uh, feeling of uh, a, like a full picture in the place. And how about if I put a little bit of reverb on this? So that's why the lines between the kind of technical and the artistic are a bit blurred there. Mm -hmm. That's why I think, you know, the assistant or associate sound designer thing is, is really, really good. For years, I worked also with a lot of the work I did earlier on with Deborah Warner. I was a composer and we worked with a sound designer. That was usually Chris Shush. Right. And um, so Chris would do the sound design. So there'd be three of us, me, composer, bringing the materials, Chris, the sound designer, designing the system and sort of painting into the space and then as an operator or sound engineer. And that worked really, really brilliantly. But in the end, actually, uh, it, it became clear to me that uh, I really wanted to do the sound design as well. Yeah. In other words, the, the comp, that, in theatre, the comp, composition for me includes the sound design. Mm -hmm. In other words, I'm not composing, I'm composing into this space. And so that happens actually, and that's why it's a little bit more like painting for me. Um, so I'm composing into the space. Chris, of course, 
his job was to take the colors and to compose and to, in a way to compose it into the space, although they're not called um, uh, composers. So I eventually started to then just say, OK, I'll do the composition and sound design. That's worked out well. But I still need somebody with some of Chris's skills with the technology. And that's where somebody like Anthony comes in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's why that's a really good that becomes then a very good. It's, it's like a duet. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Um, a short, a short question that uh, hopefully wants a short answer. Uh, what's your favorite yeah. musical instrument? The Japanese gamelan. And, okay, <laughs> well, that'll bring me on to my next question. Uh, <laughs> could you tell me a bit about your work with Garcin Lazar and, and in particular your design for how it is part two? Um, yeah, I'd love to. Um, how did that come about? How did that come about? Um, so I, yes, I think I know. Uh, because I worked with uh, Connor and Judy and Steve on part one, which was all recorded mm -hmm. sound um, and playing with different kinds of technology, uh, some analog uh, as well as digital. Um, in that, that it was in the course of making that, which was over like two or three years, in fact, that I my relationship with them developed. Um, now, Maura, my wife, Maura O'Keefe, of course, has a long, long-standing relationship with Connor and Judy. Produce, has been producing their work for a while, but I didn't know them so well. Mm -hmm. And so, it, through working with them, uh, workshopping part one, uh, mostly at the Everyman Theatre in Cork, uh, got to know them well. And um, it was in, I, I, they got to know a little bit more about my, my own interests and things. And I think I, they, they learned about my work with the Gamelan, mm -hmm. with the Irish Gamelan Orchestra. And I w would have shared with them a copy of um, our, our CD, The Three Forges in 2015. And I think um, Judy and Connor uh, uh, just became a little bit intrigued um, with it, I, I may have sent them on videos and things. I don't think they've ever been at a performance, um, but uh, they were they be, they were a bit intrigued. And I'd never used gamelan in any of my any of my theatre work before. Really? And okay. no, never, uh, never. And uh, so the Irish. This is a. I mean, you know, going back to the thing about that meeting with Pat Kiernan and others in Cork at that time when. Um, uh, for the first time, my uh, my sort of life as a musician, and then uh, my life as a as a um, someone interested in theatre overlapped. Um, similarly, my my uh, life, you know, or my activities or practice or whatever you want to call it, as a gamelan musician and a composer in that context, and the leader of this ensemble, the Irish Gamelan Orchestra, is very separate to my life as a traditional percussionist, for example. Mm -hmm. They only overlap in a, in, a, in a little way. So some people will think, oh, yeah, that's Mel, he's a bower on a bones bear. Somebody says, oh, Mel, that's Mel who does the gamelan. Somebody, oh, that's Mel who does the theatre stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so when Judy and Connor became interested in the gamelan and began to talk about the possibility uh, that we might do. Uh, use the gamelan for for part two. Of course, I was like incredibly excited by mm. that. Um, be, partly because I there there is nowhere that I am happier than sitting on the floor in the gamelan room with with these instruments and critically with this group of people who mm. are the, the Irish Gamelan Orchestra, who I, I, I love. And mm -hmm. and so there's a a very strong bond there. I, it's peak experience for me just just uh, uh, making music with them. So that's one reason, of course, we're always looking for an opportunity um, to to a, a reason to bring that group together who are quite quite dispersed. And uh, up to that point, you know, we, we would do that every so often, um, but always for concerts, and always working again collaboratively with other artists. So you know, working with poets and musicians and singers. Uh, that the album, the 2015 album is all about that collaborate, co-composing and co-making work with other people. Um, so the idea of doing it with theater 
and working uh, in that context was really, really exciting to me because, of course, I also love being in the theatre space. So the idea that it might be in the middle of the gamelan, in the middle of theatre making space, in the middle of a Beckett piece with these people who I had grown to love over the few years was just, you know, just fantastic uh, um, prospect. And so, um, but of course, I hadn't written a lot of music or made a lot of music for theatre uh, with live music. So that was going to be that was going to be one of the challenges. I also knew that most of the members of the uh, of the Irish Gamelan Orchestra, who shared that world of music making with me, were not theatre people, had not done work in in uh, in theatre before. So I was also conscious. Okay, I'm sort of bringing them now into this other world, which is very different. Mm. It's fundamentally different from the concert world. It's a you know. It, these are two different tribes as well. So I thought, okay, this is a great uh, prospect idea of bringing two tribes together. Um, and then the question was how to how to make the music. And that's when we got into the next stage then of working uh, with Steve and with Judy and with Connor uh, and doing workshops with them with the with the Gamelan Ensemble in, in the room as well. Mm. And uh, and so it so then it just unfolded. It developed from there. I mean, I can talk a little bit more about that process if you wish, but you may have um, another question. Well, I, yeah, I suppose I'm just look, looking at the time as well. Um, thank you for that. Um, that that was great. I so I did I did I suppose I did want to ask a bit about the the staging of the the piece. All right, before yeah. before moving on, just in terms of like the 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 decision maybe to you know raise up. Like I'm, I'm kind of wondering, where did this come from? This, this uh, was, and was it there's sonic reasons for it, or or, or aesthetic reasons for it, or, um, um, yeah. yeah, what were the reasons for the the sort of the, the layout of the space yeah. and the staging? Sure. Well, I say two things about that. Own um, the 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 staging really is with Judy's idea, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and the idea of of. Uh, you know the mad idea of building a stage in the up, up above the stall, so people uh, would would be able to sit upstairs in the balcony um, uh, uh, was Judy's idea. It's related to the idea of really using the space uh, in the theatre. And part one had already turned the the the, uh, um, the, the Everyman Palace uh, um, on its head anyway, because the audience were sitting on the stage looking out into the auditorium, an empty mm. auditorium. So the auditorium became the stage. And so I think in Judy's thinking, she was thinking, okay, how else now can we trouble the space, reconfigure the space? And um, so she came up with this idea of, of building a platform. Uh, um, and so, and then of course the gambling was set up on, on there. So that's one thing. So Judy would have a lot more to say about that. Um, the second part of it is to say that in terms of staging, of course, the thing about the gamelan is that it's undeniable as a as a, as a, as, a, as a material object, mm. um, and so um, you, if you're and it's and it's quite large, so your staging is always um, going to be determined to a significant degree or whatever you come up with by the presence of those instruments mm-hmm. um you know they they are strong they are strong you can't hide them yeah and, there's, and anyway, there's no dressing them up as anything else no they want to be what they are and i think one with great credit to judy she really embraced that because mm-hmm. you might say to yourself what in the name of god has a japanese gambling got anything to do with beckett for example or what's it got anything to do with beckett in the everyman palace in cork um so you know, so, but actually, uh, Judy really embraced, I think we all did, uh, but Judy really, really embraced that um, and sort of built on it in a way, you know, found a way to to, to really resonate with it. Um, and also there was the sense that the instruments themselves were, um, were, were live. Um, you know, there, I mean, in Java, there, there, there is that idea that, um, you know, the gongs, for example, have a, have their own energy mm-hmm. um and uh, even you know that belief in animism that they have they have uh, um that they're animated in some way that they have a spiritual dimension to them and so there was a lot of that in terms of moving bringing the instruments into the theater space which as you and i know um can be um 
the relationship to objects and things, um, when they become part of a set, uh, um, they're, they're not, they don't always have the same status as something that's precious. And of course, so to bring, so the instruments became part, they were they, always the instruments, but now we're becoming part of a set. And one of my concerns always was to make sure that these were uh, 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 primarily considered to be uh, instruments, musical instruments of value, and that they needed not to be uh, treated as maybe one might treat um, uh, set piece. pieces. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so that's how that's really how that um, that came about. And the other thing, I know you're not quite asking me this, but just to say is that. The thing about that amount of material on the stage, uh, where, for example, there are certain things about etiquette where you cannot step over them, so you've got mm -hmm. to move around them, and you've got to take your shoes off. Okay. So, so in embracing this, Judy also then brought certain challenges to herself, which were, okay, so this now is creating a maze for me to work with that the actors must move around in. So it constricts and limits mm -hmm. um, the pathways they can take, they've got to take their shoes off. Sonically, uh, it, it wasn't done for acoustic reasons, but it introduced an anxiety because before we got up there, I had no idea what it was going to sound like. Course, but yeah. suddenly we're near the ceiling. Mm -hmm. But it actually worked out really well. We didn't want to use any sound reinforcement. We wanted to keep it acoustic. Mm -hmm. And uh, we kept our fingers crossed that when it sat there, uh, then it would be up there, that it would work so that we get some reflection off the ceiling. The other big question was because we're sitting effectively on a huge box and it's very physical, the playing mm -hmm. of the gamelan, mm -hmm. you're thumping, you know, to some degree, whether we get the, all this kind of thumping sound underneath in mm -hmm. there. And in fact, we had to carpet it and we had to put a, a thick layer of underlay as well, just to absorb um, some of that. So it brought some advantage, uh, or brought some, some challenges with it. Sure. But many more advantages, I think. Fantastic. And, and you know, it was really well received and uh, nominated. Nominated? Did it win the Irish Times Theatre Award? Uh, um, it, I'll, have to, I'll have to check. Yeah. Part two Part two was nominated, didn't mm. win, but the soundscape for part one was nominated and won. I see. Yes, that's where I was getting confused. Yeah. Uh, well, so yeah. congratulations. Um, uh, and listen, yeah, again, thank you for your time. I'll, I'll just kind of finish with one one last question and that's around i suppose the big topic of the year which is you know the covid 19 pandemic how has it affected your work and um are you starting to get to the point now where you're able to resume planning new projects and uh looking ahead to next year um i'd say the planning never stopped mm -hmm. um um, it just, everything became much more movable feast. So things were just moved further and further out. Um, the, uh, so I, I, I've remained hopeful all the time. Uh, I, but I, I, of course, have to say straight off that I'm in an enormously privileged position where I have a full-time job. And so um, the, the, and I've always in my, uh, in my life, you know, had to juggle between my, my responsibilities and commitment to education and my responsibilities and commitment to artistic practice. And, and, and also the challenge for me has been to find, find ways to bring them together. Um, and, uh, but it, it does mean that when everything, anything that was planned in terms of concerts or in terms of shows, uh, when they were all postponed, I, I was able to absorb at least the economic financial shock of that. Um, so I'm, I, I, I'm incredibly grateful um, for that. Uh, but I did find, like everybody else, or most people, I think, the first couple of months of the, of the, of the pandemic to be very strange, a very strange space to negotiate. Uh, I wasn't motivated to do any, um, to do any creative work. I found mm. it, it, my, myself a little bit dulled uh, in that period, and I, and actually, I was more, uh, I was more interested in trying to tune into the quietness, uh, the relative quietude of the world, and I, I that's what I tried to, that's what I tried to embrace, and I big and I really loved it. I loved the um, the quietness of the world, um, 
and um, so, but I, but creatively, I, I didn't, um, yeah, I wasn't moved to do anything. I didn't feel in any hurry to do anything. Uh, I did try because of a little bit of pressure to to continue to prepare um, some materials for a couple of projects. I did work a bit um, at home uh, and continue to on uh, just on my computer. But I need really for things to to blossom. I need to be in the room with people. And um, so I did try a little bit of kind of making stuff, sending it out to people, them responding to it, sending back. Um, uh, and I'm not sure uh, how successful that was. In the end, I, 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 I kind of lost heart with that, to be honest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's just not my, I, I, I'm just not my best when I'm in the room with other people. And I'm also, I, I learned a long, long time ago that, um if i if i can be in the room of good people what will be produced will be way 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 better than what i can do myself and so i'm 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 looking forward to being back in the room again Mm. great um well i'll look forward to hearing what you come up with next um yeah i hope you have a, a quiet christmas and um it's been lovely to chat to you thanks very much thank you very much owen enjoyed that thanks very much to mel for being so generous with his insights thanks as well to the arts council for funding these interviews and to astronaut mike dexter for composing the theme tune in the next episode i'll be speaking to another composer tom lane